Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. This morning's reading is from the book of Hebrews, beginning to read at chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room, with the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread, this was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. 
This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Thank you for reading. And what a reading. All this strange talk of covenants and lampstands, priests and tents. We're right in the thick of chapters 5 to 10 now, aren't we? These central chapters on Jesus' priestly ministry. And I guess you might be wondering, do we really need to bother listening to all this dense material? I guess even the regulars here might be wondering that, let alone those new to Christian things. So... So what? What difference does it make that we have this priest on heaven, in heaven? Does it make any difference down to us, uh, to us down here on earth? Well, yes. This, strange as it may seem, makes all the difference. Because of Jesus' priestly work, we can enter God's presence with confidence. That confidence actually frames chapters 5 to 10. Maybe if you've got your Bibles open, flick back with me to 5 verse 16. Actually 5 verse 14, where we began to talk about uh, Jesus' priesthood. Sorry, I meant 4.14. There you go. 4.14. The writer says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, and then down to verse 16, 416, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. And now flick forward to the end of uh, this uh, study of Jesus' priesthood, 10, verse 19, chapter 10, verse 19. 10, verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, do you see again? Since we have confidence to enter. The most holy place by the blood of Jesus. And, and now down to verse 22, 10, 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings. This word for approach in 4.16 and draw near in 10.22. It's actually the same word in the original. The writer showing us this is all about having confidence to draw near to God. This is how Jesus' priesthood cashes out for us. We can be confident that God's door is open to us now. Confident that when we come into his presence and pray to him as we just did, as Johnny led us, that he hears. Confident that he won't turn us away. But you know, that confidence, it doesn't just help us in our prayer life today as we approach him daily. It also keeps us going in the Christian life until we arrive at our destination. You see, if daily approach is the immediate frame around chapters 5 to 10, the bigger frame, well, it's the Christian journey. Do you remember how in chapters 3 to 4 we were told the Christian life is like the journey through the desert? After we've looked at Jesus' priesthood, the writer will pick up that theme and say, we're heading towards a heavenly Zion. Now, I wonder, have you ever had to make a journey to visit somebody when you weren't confident 
that you were going to be greeted with a welcome when you got there. It turns out I've actually got a relative down the road here in Fulwood. I've never met him before. And for a whole year, I've been meaning to make that journey and knock on his door. But I don't know whether I'm going to be welcomed in. I've lacked confidence, and so I haven't got round to it yet. You see, the point is that confidence in a welcome at the end of your journey keeps you going. And without that confidence, it's hard to keep going. Well, Jesus' priestly work, his, his ministry on our behalf, gives us that confidence that God has forgiveness, that there is a warm welcome waiting at our destination. And that gives us strength to keep persevering. Do you see? Confidence in Jesus' priestly work, it's the beating heart of the Christian life. Keeps us praying daily. Keeps us persevering until we get home. But now here's the catch. The very thing that makes Jesus' priestly work so good is the thing that also makes it hard to believe. What is that thing? It's that Jesus' priestly ministry is based in heaven and is at work to change hearts. You see, on the one hand, that means it actually works. We have access to heaven and changed hearts. But on the other hand, it means it's invisible. We can't see him. And so the writer says to us today, be confident in Jesus' invisible priestly work. That's the big point. Be confident in Jesus' invisible priestly work. And his big strategy for helping us have that confidence is a game of spot the difference. You can tell I've got toddlers, can't you? Um, The writer puts the old covenant priestly work side by side with Jesus' new covenant priestly work and says, come on, compare them. And the comparisons, they come under three categories introduced in the first six verses of our reading, 8, 1 to 6. Those comparisons are in the priestly sanctuary, their place of work. In the priestly sacrifice, the content of their work. And finally, in the priest's covenant, the ultimate goal of their work. And each of these three comparisons that's introduced here is going to be explored across chapters 8 to 10. But actually, of course, what the writer is going to show us is there is no comparison. Jesus is simply far superior. As we compare both ministries, it's, it's going to both promote our confidence in Jesus. And it's also going to shut down for us faulty confidence in false strategies for entry. Which is actually basically anything else. So here it is, the basic comparison introduced in 8, 1 to 6. The basic comparison is that Jesus replaced an earthly model with a better heavenly reality. He replaced an earthly model with a better heavenly reality. Look at the middle of verse 1. Where is our high priest, verse 1? Well, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. 
And verse 2, he serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Our high priest is in heaven, not in a man-made tent, but sat by God's very throne for real. Notice how Jesus' workplace is called, middle of verse 1, the true tabernacle. Jesus' workplace is the real deal. He is in God's presence right now for real in a way that no earthly priest ever could be. Then in verses 3 to 4, we move on to the content of the priest's work, offering sacrifices. And it's interesting, we're not actually told yet what his sacrifice actually is. Of course, many of us know, but, but what we are told here is that he doesn't join up in with the priestly offerings on earth. Did you see that in verses 3 to 4? Because verse 4, did you see? There are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law here on earth. The post on earth is already already filled. But the thing is, Jesus isn't playing at priest on earth because he's doing the job for real in heaven. Now again, quite what offering he brings we'll come to later, and especially next week. But can you see the implication, perhaps, of verses 3 to 4? It looks as though the, the hearers of this letter might be wanting a priest, giving offerings on earth, doing the job in a way that they can see. Have you ever been in a Zoom work meeting uh, since we all went into lockdown Um, I've been in a few, and occasionally you get people who won't turn their video on. And you wonder, are they really there? Are they at the desk? Are they really doing their job? Who knows? You can't see them. Well, so with Jesus. Is he really there? You can't see him. Well, the writer answers this kind of, visible is better attitude by returning to his comparison of the priestly workplaces. Look at verse 2, Jesus is in the true tabernacle in heaven. Verse 5, the earthly priests serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. Yes, it's visible, but it's just a shadow, a copy, a shadowy copy. It looks a bit like the real deal, but only dimly, only an outline. It lacks, it lacks the substance. It lacks reality. So then, yeah, it's true, you can't see Jesus' work. But that's the very reason you should have faith in it. That's the very reason it's better. If you could see it, it would just be, well, a replica of the real thing. Verse 6 sums up the comparison and introduces the final uh, topic for comparison, the covenant. Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Jesus replaced an earthly model with a better heavenly reality. Now, Can you see how all that fits with giving us confidence in his work? I wonder, do you find it hard to trust a saviour that you can't see? 
who is in a throne room that you can't see, interceding before a God who you can't see. It is hard for us to grasp, isn't it? Um, They reckon 93 million selfies were taken uh, 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 yesterday, yesterday, on Google Android phones alone. And apparently people that use iPhones are even more vain. So just imagine how many were taken yesterday. We're such a visual culture, aren't we? So how can something invisible be better? How can something intangible be more real? Well, you see, Hebrews wants to tip our view of reality on its head. The writer says to us, we're the ones down here in the shadowlands. He is in the real tent. The real world is above, where God dwells, where Jesus has entered, where we will one day follow. If only we will put our confidence in him. You know, actually, I think this shouldn't be hard for us to grasp because we live in an age of scientific discovery, don't we? Where we accept now the existence of forces that are invisible but govern reality. Where we know that the universe extends beyond our sight. The the harder we look, the more we see. Where we know that there are particles that we don't see but that are the building blocks of reality. We should... We should be able to understand this. We must grasp it fully. That the real reality is invisible to us for now. We must grasp it fully. If we're ever to put our full faith in our heavenly high priest. Right, let's turn then to examine uh, one of the big comparisons. That is made. First of all, Jesus' new covenant and the old priest's old covenant. The writer says Jesus' new covenant secures real relationship. Jesus' new covenant secures real relationship. That's 8, 8 to 13. But some of you might be wondering, what even is a covenant? Well, I think a helpful way to think about it is just that a A covenant is a relationship established by a binding commitment. So um, like the promise at the end of verse 10 here, did you see that? I will be their God and they will be my people. A binding commitment establishing a relationship. That's why marriage is sometimes called a covenant, isn't it? Now what's this got to do with priests? Well, the thing is, any kind of binding relationship with God is only possible for humans on the basis of forgiveness. And forgiveness is only possible on the basis of a sacrifice. We're going to think about that a lot more next week. But without a priest involved, there can be no covenant between man and God. That's why Jesus is said in verse 6 to, did you see? To mediate the covenant. He makes it possible through a sacrifice. Now, if Jesus hadn't mediated a new covenant, we'd be in big trouble. Do you see why? Because the old covenant simply didn't work, verse 7. Verse 7, for if there'd been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with... Now, it's interesting, isn't it? What would you expect next? I'd have expected him to say God found fault with that old covenant. What he says is God found fault with 
the people. You see, the first covenant demanded that the people fully obey God. If you obey me fully, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what the old covenant said. Now, maybe that sounds like a high bar, but actually full obedience should have been, well, it should have been straightforward because God had done more than enough to to earn the people's obedience. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, he took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. He showed his unique divine power. He showed his unfailing love for his people Israel. And all he asked in response was their worship and their trust. It was the, it was the rational thing to do, the reasonable thing to do. But, but verse 9 continues... They did not remain faithful to my covenant. And so I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Okay, now spot the difference. Why is Jesus' new covenant better? Can you see verse 10? Verse 10, this is the covenant I'll establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you see, under the covenant Jesus mediates, full obedience is not the basis for the relationship, but it's a benefit promised to us. God promises to heal our hearts and minds so that we do respond rightly to his power and his love. Obedience will now be a benefit of the relationship not the basis so what is the basis verse 12 verse 12 I will do all this says God for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more forgiveness the forgiveness won for us by our heavenly high priest that's the basis of our real relationship with God now So many people, don't they, think that Christianity is a throwback to the past. Have you ever come across that attitude? All this talk of sacrifices and priests, it's so medieval. Why do I even need it? I'm I'm pretty good. God will let me in. I've performed pretty well. But the thing is, anybody who thinks they can be in a relationship with God based on their performance, actually they're the ones living in the past. Look at verse 13. By calling this covenant, Jesus' covenant, new, he's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. You see, trusting in our performance to gain entry to God, that's what's obsolete and outdated. What a tragedy to be so muddled on that. But of course, it's an even bigger tragedy when Christians get muddled on that. Why do we get muddled? I guess there's something comforting, isn't there, about taking matters into your own hands. Something comforting about having something to do. Rituals to perform. Rules to keep. So that somehow by 
my work, I can gain confidence that I really have gained entry. God, look, I lead a small group. Actually, I don't lead a small group, so I can't base my confidence on that, but maybe you do. God, look, I lead a small group. Can I come in? Well, have you loved the members fully and faithfully of that small group? With a love that never fails? God, look, I've given to the Building for the Future Fund. Can I come in? Well, have you given with fully pure motives? Not caring one jot that others know or don't know about what you've given. Giving fully cheerfully without any regrets about the holiday you can't now go on. Now, of course, you know, if you lead a small group or give to the Building for the Future Fund, I hope you keep doing it. Because otherwise, you know, we'd all be in trouble here and I'd have to find other work. But please, only do those things without trusting in them to gain entry to God through them. But instead, trusting fully in the performance of your priest on your behalf. You can't be fully obedient. Not until God fully finishes the work that he started in your hearts and minds, which he will do one day. But for now, our only hope of entry is forgiveness. The forgiveness earned by our priest. Jesus' new covenant, and it alone secures real relationship with God. Well, finally for today. Uh, Chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. Jesus' heavenly entry secures real access. Jesus' heavenly entry secures real access. We said before, didn't we, that the earthly tabernacle is just a replica, a model of the real deal in heaven. And that's right, isn't it? But it is still a God-given replica, this earthly tabernacle. Now, that's not to say that there's some sort of tent flying around in heaven... No, it's more that it's given to help us visualize what it really takes to come into God's presence. And that's what the writer does for us here in chapter 9. Let's look together at the model and and see if we can work out its meaning. Did you see the model here? It has two sections. 9 verse 2, the holy place. And then 9, 3 to 5, the second section, the most holy place. And do you see what separates them, beginning of verse 3? The most holy place was behind the curtain. So two rooms with a massive keep-out curtain shutting off the room where God revealed his presence. And now look at how the earthly model works in verses 6 to 7. Verse 6, there's lots of priestly ministry happening in the first room, the outer room. But verse 7... Entrance into the most holy place, the inner room, was a one man, one day, once a year affair. Verse 7 is actually describing something called the Day of Atonement, when all the sins committed in ignorance by Israel were supposedly washed away. Only they weren't. It was a day Israel was supposed to come into God's presence. Only they couldn't. Look at verse 8. It's it's shocking. 
Verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed. Now people argue about how we should interpret the tabernacle and its meaning. But can you see there can't be any argument because God the Spirit has spoken. While the tabernacle stood, God's door was shut. To enter God's presence for real, we need a priest who does far more than play about with a toy model tabernacle here on earth. Uh, But notice again all the attractions of this toy model. Uh, The attractions of the earthly ministry, it's visible, it's tangible. But actually it's attractions of the very thing that are its flaws. It is only earthly, only external. Verse 10. It dealt, verse 10, in food and drink and ceremonial washings, external regulations. Look, if you want to wash your body, go and have a bath. But that's not going to help you enter God's presence. Because our problem is in here and up there. The sin in here and the wrath from on high. What we need, well, what we need is what we now have. Verse 11 The priest who went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands, not a part of this creation, not earthly, but heavenly. And because he has entered there, at last the guilt in here can be washed away for good. Because now we know that entry is possible, that forgiveness is for real. And so, verse 14, our consciences can be cleansed at last. I wonder what your view of church buildings is. Can you see that it matters? We must not trust in an earthly, holy place. It sounds ridiculous saying it after reading all this, doesn't it? But we, but we still do it. We're actually, as evangelicals, often called um, low church. And and there's a complex history to that term. But but partly what it's talking about is the fact that we don't have a high view of our building or the people in it, not the leaders. We're not priests. And, you know, sometimes there's a slight suspicion that we also have a low view of God. And sometimes it's also said as a kind of, well, insult. Low church. Can I say that we should gladly lower ourselves because we believe that in Jesus, our great high priest, we have been granted access to the highest throne that there is. A heavenly throne room, God's most holy place, that is so high and so lifted up that any attempt to get there through any earthly replica is just, well, actually, that's an insult. That's an insult to the work of Christ, which is a far more serious deal. And it's a sign of misplaced confidence, isn't it, that's going to fail. Perhaps it's a sign of a faith that has already failed because it trusts in what it can see 
not in what it can't. We're not low church because we are relaxed about the things of God. Or at least we shouldn't be. We have a high view of God and his purity and his holiness. Or at least we should do. And it is because we have a high view of God and his holiness that we trust not in us or our performance, but only in the work of our perfect priest. Please, put your faith in him, fully in him, and in him alone, because nothing else will work. Let's pray. Father, we pray so much that you would help each one of us here to live not by sight, but by faith in the perfect, heavenly and real work of our great high priest. Help us to fix our eyes on him. Amen.